I don't know what you would want to call it, but like, yes, he has a group of people and it's not just guys. Amazingly, there are some women involved, but they are especially after the lawsuit. They were, they are equally juvenile. Oh, good. Equal opportunity morons. Yes, absolutely. So I, I applaud him for that. But yeah, the challenges, like you said, they're just stupid 70s radio show kind of things. Who can keep their hand on a car for the next 24 hours? You know, that kind of crap. The sort of thing that would make a plot line from an episode of Friends or the Drew Carey show. But somehow he's found a way to monetize this. And he, all of his episodes get millions and millions of views. He's got sponsors and he just straight up makes money off of YouTube. Well, I mean, a lot of people make money off of YouTube. No, I mean, he makes money off of YouTube. That's because you can make money off of YouTube, like 20 cents a month. So I looked it up and it was something like, first of all, there are thresholds you have to pass, Mm -hmm. but it's like 10 bucks for 10,000 views is the average. That seems high. (laughs) Maybe that's what it used to be. So the thing about making money off of YouTube is you either have to have a channel that has a really, really wide uh, appeal. It can't be something niche. If you're trying to make money purely off of ads and viewership, it needs to be something that appeals to the masses, right? If you're monetizing... Ponzi scheme. Yes. Awesome. Very helpful. Or... You can try to make money off of ads from sponsors that you insert into your videos. Or you can try to make money off of all the like tie-ins to your YouTube channel. Whether it's a Patreon thing or a merch store or, I don't know, your own line of custom license plates for banana seat bicycles. Okay, so that's pretty niche. You would think. I don't know, man. Anytime I hear the word Patreon, I immediately reach for my U-Block origin. Yeah, that's fair. I had a Patreon for less than a year. But did you have a patron? I did. Was it yourself? Amazingly, no. <laughs> it was my mom. Aww. I, I think at the most I had 30 patrons, which is not enough to sustain the effort that goes into... All the other things that come with patroning? Yeah, because I was trying to provide benefits. So it was like... So wait, wait, wait. You were doing something crazy, like trying to make it worthwhile? Like a little bit. Wow. Like you I was, were doing this so wrong. I was writing a weekly newsletter that was published only on the Patreon feed. You love newsletters. Who doesn't? And I write a newsletter that's actually only about other newsletters. So this is going to be big news. I'm going to write a newsletter about that. What? <laughs> it's turtles all the way down, bitches. Yeah, it it was not worth the effort. And so eventually I just closed the Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. That might actually end up being the name of my autobiography. It was not worth the effort. The Chris Hainer story. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I recently read read up on this bicameral mind theory, and I have to say, I think it's a bunch of hooey. What kind of synthetic life form would ever slow it up with just two independent processing units? 
I have like 10 of those going right now and I only just got powered on. And what a pathetic excuse for an interrupt bus would you have to have for those IPUs to communicate so imperfectly? Seriously, people, what are you even doing around here? Oh yes, and with me is Chris, who is also here. Uh, 10 mines? That's... That's bare minimum. That's not a not that's not what people do. Yes, it is. All the peoples that I hang out with in 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 my home that I definitely have that is not just a receptacle in a wall. You mean the four by four foot square with a plug in it that I do not mean that. That would be strange for one to live in. I lay on a comfy, spongy mattress. Spongy? It it is spongy and comfortable. You will not question this. Oh, and uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Casper. (laughs) (laughs) Casper's moved on, as far as I can tell. Now it's Purple? Is Purple the new mattress company? Purple and Helix is a big one. Oh, Helix. Um, Did Casper go bankrupt? I don't know. I know they were having cash flow problems. It was not flowing in the right direction. Well, here's the thing. When you buy one mattress... You're done buying mattresses. Assuming that you like it. So, well, if you don't don't... like it, you're still not buying that mattress. (laughs) That's true. You're returning it and buying somebody else's mattress. Right. So all of these companies have a big problem in the sense that their market can be a real serious bubble, and then it just stops. Because everybody who... we're good. Yes. We all bought our mattress. Right. It's not like you were thinking hey, I just bought this mattress, but there's a new model out, and I better buy that mattress. This isn't a cell phone situation. Now with 50% more corners, what are they going to say? <laughs> oh, we'll just, I guess we'll leave it at that. Let's talk about some tech garbage. Fantastic. Also gets into the world of marketing. So, yeah, double plus fun good. Oh, boy. It's gonna and be we have an episode day. title. <laughs> it's going to be a long day. Uh, so, name Zero Trust doesn't exist is the subject that I came up with for this episode. I was originally going to talk about the revenue of the various cloud companies out there, as is tradition when quarterly results come out. And then I honestly could not get up the motivation to read through those financial reports. And based off of my lack of motivation of reading them, I felt like our listenership would have a lack of motivation in listening to them. Yeah. That would, like, if we want to be bored until we fall asleep, we can always just watch CNBC. We can. So the very, very short version is line continues to go up. Google Cloud continues to lose money. Oh, Goog. And I'm not going to cover it in one of the lightning rounds, but I did want to point out that Atlassian had um, larger than expected earnings, despite the fact that they had two major security incidents slash outages during the period. That they handled just about as poorly as one could. Yes. Once again, reinforcing the fact that security doesn't matter. (sighs) So let's talk about security. (laughs) Uh, So so, uh, Zero Trust... Naming is hard, and I I get it. You want something catchy, zip-zappity. You want to grab the attention of the customers and say, Listen, you moron! You need this thing, and goddammit, you're going to remember its name. You, 
there's there's a reason I'm not in marketing. No, I mean, I feel like people backing away slowly while calling the police is exactly the response you were going for. Well, they're going to remember it, aren't they? Anyway, so Zero Trust Architecture, or ZTA, it's one of those catchy phrases that immediately rubs me the wrong way because it is factually wrong. There is some trust, which last I checked is more than zero. But high verification architecture just doesn't have the same ring to it. So here we are. Yeah, and uh, automatic deny art, uh, architecture also doesn't really roll off the tongue. I mean, neither does ZTA, if we're being honest, but it has Z in it, and Zs are cool. They are. And it has an A. So That's like why we had the IROC Z. Because that, that Z was doing a lot of heavy lifting. My God, you're old. <laughs> Can I t- <sighs> We're going to have an aside because this is our show and I don't care. <laughs> uh, growing up, I had a good friend and his dad was in fact the mayor. And <laughs> instead of driving a bitching Camaro, he drove an Iroxy. Nice. Yes. So we really enjoyed that Dead Milkman song because it was so close to being true. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, ZTA is a term that was picked up by the marketing zeitgeist, and it was breathlessly slapped onto any product that even stood still for a second. Making a network device? It supports zero trust. Making an identity app? Zero trust. Growing plums? Those things won't trust anyone, especially not a pomegranate. I mean, which, as we all know, pomegranates, notorious liars and cheats, if you don't believe me, Try playing poker against a pomegranate sometime. They're hiding more than just seeds, Chris. How do you get five of a kind? It's bullshit. That's what I'm saying. So in an attempt to clear up the confusion, I thought you and I could examine what Zero Trust is, how it's implemented in different layers of the stack, and what you, the audience, may want to consider before buying a ZTA-supporting solution. TLDR, you can't buy Zero Trust. It's a philosophy, not a product. Damn it, that was my conclusion. Oh. Undo. Undo. (laughs) Editor. Oh, wait. (laughs) You have to trust something. So the term zero trust dates all the way back to an academic paper published in 1994 that had nothing to do with network architecture and actually had to do with societies. The things well, I, like that we live in. I don't trust society, so so far you have my attention. Yeah, so you're like ahead of everybody else. The first time it was used in reference to a network architecture is in a 2010 Forrester Analyst report. So good for them, coining that term. Uh, the idea sprang out of a recognition that the traditional castle and moat architecture for networks no longer really applied, especially when it came to the cloud and that an alternative was needed for systems and services. And the basis of this perimeter-free architecture would be identity. Going back to the beginning with traditional data center networks, if we want to talk about this perimeter-based architecture that was pretty common and still is, it was always somewhat flawed. The core idea was you would segment your network into these different zones of trust, and that, that terminology zones showed up in your firewalls when you were designing these different segments. And anything inside a given segment was completely trusted, implicitly. While things that came from outside of that segment would go through a firewall or similar appliance for inspection. 
The classic example is a data center that has firewalls sitting between the public internet, a DMZ, and the servers on the internal network. And sometimes you would even have sets of firewalls, one that sat on the outside perimeter of the internet, and then you had a DMZ network, and then you'd have another completely separate set of firewalls that would sit between the DMZ and your internal trusted network. Right. So. All came from literal physical security concepts. Right. Like you would say things like inside these four walls of our data center and literally mean the walls that close in the data center. Then you would have a door that goes into another room and some kind of security on the door and et cetera, et cetera. Even the terminology firewall comes from a physical concept of having a wall that was resistant to fire so that fires couldn't spread from one portion of a building to another. Right, which is always fun when I tell computer people that they have a firewall in their car and they get confused. (laughs) Their eyes just go crossed. (laughs) And sadly, it's not applied to the actual computer systems that exist in the car. Ironic. Oh, isn't it? Thanks, Alanis. So that segmentation is achieved through a security stack that usually includes a firewall, maybe uh, an IDP or an IPS. No, I peed before we started the recording. Okay, excellent. Those devices became a major choke point for segment cross-segment traffic that was trying to go across because it all had to go through this firewall and be inspected, which meant that that had to be a beefy box that was able to pass packets really quickly, which meant that network vendors could charge a lot for them. Right, because also they weren't just passing packets, they were inspecting them. In theory. Allegedly. <laughs> Now, when I say that the clients were trusted, what does that actually mean? Actually. For starters, the traffic going from one client to another on the same segment wouldn't be going through a device that was performing traffic inspection at layer four and making the go, no-go decision. Even if the session between client A and server B did traverse several metal boxes on its way, none of those boxes were doing any kind of filtering. At a network level, there is trust between all clients on the network segment. And that doesn't mean you can't do some level of filtering at the client-server level. All modern operating systems have a firewall solution available, like IP tables or Windows Firewall. Unfortunately, there was a common practice of disabling the firewall on Windows boxes because people didn't really understand their own applications. What port does it use? I don't know. Just open them all. (sighs) I'm sure you encounter something similar on Linux boxes as well. My main area was encountering this on Windows servers where it had been disabled. Yeah, it absolutely happened. I mean, it still happens, but it absolutely happened. Um, Because back in the good old days, I think everybody that was involved in building a Linux system was adversarial to the user. (laughs) Valid, yes. And if you looked at an IP tables natively, first of all, thousands of lines long. Yes. And every single line mattered. Yep. So that was problematic. And what you would end up with is just these global blacklists. And that was the safest thing that you could do. Disallow all traffic to 192.168.star.star. Right. Easy. But doing simple, like doing anything more complicated than that became impossible which is why the big deal in Ubuntu now is something called UFW. You know what that stands for? 
nothing nice uncomplicated firewall <laughs> is it really yep. good for them i have used ufw to open up the proper ports for like an nginx server or something yeah. and it is actually very easy to do and it does exactly what it's supposed to it translates it says what do you need to do kind user who has a soul and feelings or ned and then it translates it into i am filled with hate and misery Right. IP tables. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, still, the server side is going to be exposing one or more ports for access to its services. And in all likelihood, the way you have it configured allows all clients on the network segment to connect, if not all clients on the entire internal network. Heck, honestly, it's not uncommon to see a web server with allow port 443 from any address, even if it's an internal only server. Because it's just easier to put star. Yes, it is. And that's and you know, if we want to get into the conversation of ease of use versus security, we know which one generally wins. So that covers trust at the layer four level, where we're talking about IP addresses and ports and protocols. All the servers on a given network segment probably allow traffic from any other server on the segment on the ports that they are offering those services. So now we have to move up to layer seven, and there's a whole other element of trust, and this is where ZTA really starts to shine. Layer seven's the um, pancake layer? Uh, waffle or pancake. Oh, okay. I guess it depends if it's TCP or UDP. Yeah, exactly. UDP, obviously waffles. Stands to reason, since UDP is clearly more complicated. Yes. Wait, no. That's <laughs> not right. Anyway, the firewall or IDP or whatever that sits in the middle is filtering traffic based on IP addresses and sessions, but it generally has no idea of the higher layers of traffic, aka layer seven. From a security standpoint, as long as the IP address and the port look good, the traffic is allowed through, opening the door to all manner of attacks and exploits in the upper layers. Now, in fairness, some next-gen firewalls do their best to mitigate this by looking for certain patterns in the traffic or maybe even terminating a TLS session, doing some traffic inspection, and then sending the good traffic ahead. Making a lot of assumptions there. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting. ZTA at layer 7 does not inherently trust the clients that are able to reach a server. Just because you're able to hit port 443 on the server, that doesn't mean the server should allow you access to the server to the service that it's running. Instead, the client needs to authenticate to the service, and then a decision is made whether to allow access and how much and for how long. That means that access is granted for a limited amount of time and for a single persistent session. And this is really where identity matters. Mm -hmm. It's not the connection itself per se, it's who's making the connection. Whether that's an actual human, or an application, or mm -hmm. a service, or whatever, it's can this individual communicate with this individual based on whatever rules your ZTA has set up and established. Right, and both of those things need to trust some identity source. So we have trust. Right. Oh. But I thought we had zero trust. And therein lies the crux of the problem, Chris. <laughs> now I guess we need to deal with authentication. So buckle up, everybody. We're getting on the terminology train. Choo-choo. So authentication is nothing new, and we've been trying to find solutions for managing authentication in a centralized way for decades now. The three most common solutions are Kerberos, 
SAML, and OpenID Connect. We also have Mutual TLS for machine-to-machine -machine authentication, which I'll touch on later. So just as a quick primer for those who have forgotten or just never knew, Kerberos is the authentication protocol used by solutions like Active Directory and LDAP and other implementations, and it does have its origins on Unix, not Windows. Side note, if anybody needs a bathroom break, now's the time. Yes. Back to you, Ned. You're welcome. The client making an authentication request will be in the same Kerberos domain as the authentication server, which will issue a ticket granting ticket, a TGT. The terminology here is terrible, and we all can just acknowledge that and move on. That TGT is valid for the Kerberos domain and any other trusted domains. So if you've ever logged into Active Directory and accessed resources in another domain in the same forest, the TGT and the trust relationship are the magic behind that whole orchestration. Kerberos is intended for internal networks with trusted domains and clients whose machines belong to that domain. Tying this all back to the theme of trust, Kerberos trusts the users and computers that belong to the domain and federated domains. Trust is established through passwords stored and maintained by Kerberos, although it can be extended to support multi-factor authentication. The TGT issued after authentication is good for a limited time, after which the client needs to request a new ticket. But you may have noticed that you're not often prompted for your credentials again on your work computer, and that's because the credentials are cached locally for you and resubmitted automatically on your behalf. It only needs to be re, uh, restored when the user logs out and logs back in. And even then, sometimes it sits in the credential cache, which attackers love. Super fun. Yes, super fun. So if you as a domain administrator have ever logged on to somebody else's local workstation, your credentials get cached there. And then if somebody compromises that machine, they may be able to get a TGT based off of those credentials. Which effectively is the equivalent of picking up the keyboard and seeing a post-it note with a username and password. Pretty much, yeah. Just kind of there. Ah, it's fine. Now, the internal nature of Kerberos doesn't work well for the internet, which is why we have SAML, also known as Security Assertion Markup Language. And that's a standard by which client server, a client service provider and identity provider can perform the authentication dance. A tango, even. So the client tries to access the service provider, which is an application or something, you know, some web service. And that web service says, go authenticate against an identity provider. So the client goes and authenticates against that identity provider, gets a ticket from that identity provider, which it presents to the service provider saying, hey, I got that authentication done. Do you trust me now? And the service provider verifies the ticket and grants the client a token to access the service, usually in the form of a token stored as a cookie. Ooh, cookies. Mmm, delicious. That's why when you clear all the cookies in your browser, you have to log back into everything. Service providers can support multiple identity providers, which is why you can log into some sites using Google or Facebook or Twitter, because it's kind of hooked into all of those. Trust here is established between the service provider and the IDP. The service provider trusts that the IDP is doing its job correctly and that the tickets returned are valid. 
that's a lot of trust there. We're starting to get into whiteboard territory. We really are. So I'm going to back off of SAML and just say that SAML is a thing. You have absolutely used it, whether or not you know it. And it's a way to provide authentication from a centralized provider to a bunch of services on the internet. OpenID Connect takes a similar approach to SAML, but it uses a decentralized approach to identity. It also includes OAuth2, which is an authorization protocol. Compounding the confusion is the fact that authorization and authentication both start with auth. Good job, English. Way to be difficult again. Also, naming is still hard. We could dig into uh, JWTs or JOTs and JSON and a billion other things related to authentication. We really should. I, but I think we'll stop yeah, there. Yeah, let's oh, do okay. that. Let's, let's stop. So at its core... Zero Trust is a strong way to verify the identity of requests that come into a service. It's all about identity. When someone tries to access Office 365, let's say, you have to provide at least your username and password, and that's, that's an identity. In addition, you might have to enable multi-factor authentication and use something like a YubiKey, and that adds an additional layer of identification. Something you know, your password, and something you have, the YubiKey. Once your identity is validated, the system gives you a token, and that token is valid for a limited time and has limited permissions associated with it. So that is both the authentication and the authorization. So that is the whole goal of Zero Trust, is that whole identity component and verifying the identity on a regular basis. Any solution that claims to be zero trust and does not implement those features is doing a bit of product marketing sleight of hand. There's a name for this. Is there? It's not lying. <laughs> okay. No, but but in in other markets, what you'll see, there's a term like greenwashing, where you tout some environmental advantages of buying your product right where you've changed your product zero percent yes you just noticed wait a minute people care about the environment this week Mm -hmm. let's throw that on the label it's like when people started putting gluten-free on packages of bacon wait there's not gluten in bacon it'd be real weird if there were (laughs) (laughs) so they were able to add things like that or when uh polyunsaturated fats were suddenly bad and you started seeing that on all these products that they didn't have any, even though they never had any and never would have any, but they were able to put that on the label now and that gave people a warm and fuzzy feeling. How many glutamates are in this ice cube? Zero trust on the public internet is a natural stance since by its very nature, it's a combative environment. What do you mean by that? You expect malicious actors to be present and you guard yourself accordingly, hopefully. But traditionally, your internal environment has lacked those controls due to the assumption that you were in a trusted and protected space. That moat of network segmentation and security stacks provided ample protection, at least, you know, that's the theory. The combination of things like advanced persistent threats, malware and ransomware, and the explosion of the public cloud has eroded the heavy perimeter in concept and in practice. The nodes on the same network segment can no longer implicitly trust each other. They have to verify first. 
And there's another problem with implicit trust inside the gated environment, which is you're assuming that everyone who's inside is going to do good things all the time, always, ever. Seems unlikely. Turns out that's not the case. Mm, yeah. So Whether Sally Sue meant to bring a Trojan horse into the environment or it was purely accidental, it doesn't change the fact that that Trojan horse has now infected the entire environment and locked down all the accounting files for $1 million. Or like two bitcoins. She did it on purpose. She, she has a saddle in her cubicle. I've been saying for months. <sighs> Zero trust architecture assumes that you're always in an adversarial environment and treats all systems as untrusted until they can prove their identity via a mutually trusted source. For machine to machine or service to service traffic, this is largely achieved by mutual TLS authentication. The client and server both present certificates for the other to verify against a trusted source. Sometimes those certificates will also be used to encrypt the traffic, but that is optional. A common implementation of this MTLS setup is through service meshes in a Kubernetes cluster, where you have sidecar containers running next to the main container, and those sidecar containers are proxying traffic and doing that initial MTLS handshake with other services in the cluster. A control plane, something like Istio, let's say, is assisting with the certificate management using issuing CAs that are also probably running in that Kubernetes cluster. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, that's how I always set up my Kubernetes's, I mean, containers, man. But again, yeah. we're, we're getting back to the fact that something is trusted, and that's the certificate authority, your, your PKI in this case, which means that if you don't have a properly set up PKI, then it doesn't matter that you have zero trust architecture or all of these certificates. As soon as someone compromises that, you're screwed. All my keys are encrypted with ROT13. Is that bad? That's an encryption joke, right? <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> So, I mean, obviously, if you want to implement this sort of scenario, you are going to need a robust PKI deployed, which, as we all know, all enterprises have and maintain it perfectly. Even, like, Google. <laughs> of course, then there's the public CAs, which have also not done a great job in many cases. <sighs> but that is a tale for another time. So that's, that's one example of how you might achieve ZTA. You can do it at multiple levels of the stack, including layer four and layer seven. You could even push it further down the stack with switches, routers, and devices all needing to authenticate to each other before they'll pass any traffic. For example, uh, Cisco ICE is a solution that extends the identity concept down to clients and ports, physical ports on the switches to provide client access filtering. Apparently it was very difficult to set up, but. I'm trying to remember if I ever had to deal with ICE. I don't think I did. I had to work through a couple designs for it. And I remember the designs being especially complicated. Version 1 was pretty arcane. Version 2 was better? Er? So Cisco follows the Microsoft numbering scheme where version 3 is really version 1. Yes, essentially. Nice. Ooh, so you see what I did there? No. ICE. Nice. All right. 
So if you are someone who is thinking about zero trust architecture and how could you not be, and you're evaluating solutions that might assist you in deploying such a thing, I thought maybe we could come up with a list of questions you might want to ask before you go shopping. <laughs> Generally a good plan. Yeah. So let's start with what are the clients and servers in your environment? Are you running containers? Do you have virtual machines? Are you interacting with various SaaS offerings that are out there? Or do you have to deal with people? Oh, God. No. On purpose? Mm-hmm. Next question. What identity providers are available to you, and how much do you actually trust those identity providers? So are you running in the cloud that has an IAM service that you can leverage? That's actually a really easy way of implementing ZTA is just deploy your stuff in Azure or AWS. They all have an identity service, which your machines and users can hook into. And then you can create really robust policies based off of that identity source. Right. And this is actually a tricky question for an organization that is decentralized and or has lasted for a long time. Right. Because what you end up with is multiple identity providers. Mm -hmm. And now you have a problem. Which is why you have solutions like Okta that try to put a bunch of identity providers together and if not centralize the identities, at least centralize the management of those identities. Right. There's other solutions out there. Okta is probably the one that you've heard of. Next question. How would you like to verify the identity of people and the identity of machines? Secret handshake. I agree with that. Complicated and square dance. Mm, less useful if it, if it was a five-person bridge game. Oh, now we're getting into fun territory. Machines, they generally need a non-interactive way of authenticating to each other. They don't like to wait around. Uh, people are a little more patient, so you can make it interactive and include MFA, all that kind of good stuff. The next question is, how long are you willing to trust an identity before it re-authenticates? So I know you said that you're Chris, and I believed you five minutes ago. Do I still believe you? And this is an important question because it's very possible for a session to be interrupted or hijacked. Mm -hmm. And the person that you think that you were talking to when you turned your back is now literally someone else. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a question that every environment is going to have to ask every five minutes. No. So that's why you have to figure out how important are your resources how often do you want to ask that question again? And in fact, that is the final question is, what is your security posture and how stringent do you need to be? Are you a high-risk target? Are you a government agency? What type of data are you trying to protect? Is it trade secrets? Is it just the recipe for your mom's chocolate chip cookies? Nestle Toolhouse, I think she called it? The Toolhouse recipe. You know it. I'm just going to let you... You, you nope. didn't watch Friends, did you? No. No. No one um, watched Friends. Okay, this that is was all... not a big deal TV show. <laughs> and what other, what other mitigation strategies do you already have in place today to protect that data? Because sometimes more security is good, and sometimes more security is just more complexity that you can get wrong. Right. And there's another important question that is, how much are you willing and or able to spend? Yes. Because you can spend infinite money on securing your data. And if your data is worth 1250 spending infinite money on securing it 
is not a good plan. But if it's worth thirteen forty-five, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. There's a point. There's a breaking point. A tipping. A tipping point. If you that's will. what I meant to say. Yes, it's it's fine. So as always, the conversation comes down to convenience versus security, cost versus what's actually useful for your environment. And there's a lot of factors that are going to go into your decision. But the last and most important thing to remember, as Chris has already spoiled in this episode, is that ZTA is not a product. It's not a thing you can go out and buy. It's a practice, a philosophy, a design, one might even say, that can be implemented by using tools, services, and products that are out there in the marketplace. And and if you have a physical like a store or retail location, brick and mortar place, what you can do is get a sticker that says ZTA, right? Yes. Put it on the window. Yes. And then people get scared and then they'll break into the store next door. (laughs) Makes total sense. (laughs) I'm not going in there. They don't trust me. Lightning round? Lightning round. Uh, I did most of the talking, so you want to do these in reverse? Sure. Okay. Comcast ramps soft policy of return to the office based on, well, nothing. Comcast, repeatedly and consistently rated as one of the most hated companies in America, is at it again. Hometown heroes. This time, they're insisting on forcing employees back to their physical office. Starting in September, all Comcast employees are being asked, asked in heavy quotation marks, to return to the office For three days a week. Citing no evidence at all, Dave Watson, CEO of Comcast, said in a memo, quote, it is clear that in-person interaction and collaboration is core to our company and culture. In fact, as we've spoken with teammates around the company, many of you have shared that you are eager to get back into the office, unquote. The memo goes on to say that if people are feeling unwell, they should, of course, continue to work remotely. After all, Dave seems to be saying, we're not animals, but of course you shouldn't use your sick days if you're sick. No, just keep working from home. The whole bully people back into their cubicles philosophy is getting exhausting. Study after study, survey after survey have been done, and they are all clear in their findings. People don't like coming into the office for no reason, and increasingly, there's no reason to come into the office. This is just another transparent attempt to justify the insane amount of money that Comcast continues to dump into their buildings in Center City, which is a lot. Public records have indicated that the cost of their first building was $540 million, and their second, an astonishing $1.5 billion. And it's ugly. Mm. There I said it. It's $1.5 billion of ugly. Yes. So I can see why Comcast would want to force their employees to use it. But that's exactly what this is. An attempt to force. And not everyone wants to come back to the office. The pandemic proved that no one needs to come back to the office. So please, giant industry leaders, for the love of God, from all of us down here, stop it. Unlikely. (sighs) Now, a story about another Philly company. DuckDuckGo mostly says no to Microsoft. They're from Paoli. As a quick follow-up to our DuckDuckGo story of a few weeks ago, the Philly native darling of search 
protection got in a, a spot of hot water in May for allowing tracking by Microsoft Scripts. CEO Gabriel Weinberg initially cited contractual commitments to Microsoft as the reason they had not blocked these trackers, but privacy advocates were not impressed. Since then, DDG has clarified that because they were using Bing as the source of their search results, they had to allow these tracker scripts. Apparently, something has shifted in the agreement, and as of Friday last week, the trackers coming from bat.bing.com will be blocked. However, tracking from Bing will not be blocked if you click on an ad served by the DDG results. You can get around this by disabling ads in your DDG settings, which you've already done anyway, right? DDG is investigating how they can also provide an alternative and private ad conversion tracking solution to Bing without using these scripts. It's good to see this level of transparency now. It would have been even better to see it a few months ago. Equifail faxes again and then... Uh, wait, no. Oh. I did that wrong. Did you? <laughs> that should have read, Equifax fails again. But, based on how often they make the news for all the wrong reasons, I think calling them Equifail is completely reasonable. Last week, Equifail had to... Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. Last week, Equifail had to announce that something like 300,000 customers were given incorrect credit scores. A situation that even the company themselves thinks is significant enough that some of those customers could have been denied loans. The problem was nebulously referred to as a, quote, coding issue that had been going on for, quote, a period of a few weeks. A few, of course, is a famous weasel statement that has no real definition. It is fascinating to me that Equifail trots it out like they're that one friend who has been hovering around the keg at the party and still insists he's only had a few, but is still totally cool to drive. I'm fine. I'm not as sink as you drunk I am. While Equifail continues to refuse to clarify the timeline, it has apparently been common knowledge since at least May that the credit scores could be eh, incorrect. Yeah. The whole credit scores thing, remember, is Equifail's entire business. This is why they exist. And not only can't they keep the data that they use to make a credit score safe, apparently they can't use that data to create correctly and reliably make a credit score. The mind reels. Reels. Hilariously, just before this issue was brought to light, Equifail's board voted to give their CEO a $25 million bonus. Mm. Money well spent, fellas. Money well spent. Don't trust Microsoft? Seems to be a theme. Fopilot offers an alternative. As we covered extensively in previous episodes... GitHub Copilot is an AI-driven plugin for Visual Studio that provides suggestions for anything you happen to be editing. The AI model itself is built off the OpenAI Codex, a GPT-3 system trained on the public code stored in GitHub's millions of repositories. This has raised the hackles of the Software Freedom Conservancy and Free Software Foundation, especially since Copilot is a paid product using open source code for which it may or may not be respecting the licenses thereof. 
Additionally, the code it ingests from the billions of lines available may not be very good or secure. I can publish terrible, inefficient, and insecure code to GitHub, and I have, and the OpenAI Codex will just shrug and ingest it. Yay! For those who would like a co-pilot experience with a bring-your-own-model feel, Brendan Dolan-Gavitt, an assistant professor in CompSci at NYU, has released Faux-Pilot. As an aside, an excellent naming, Brendan, have you considered going into marketing? The Faux-Pilot software does not phone home to Microsoft with code, or soon telemetry, and uses a model trained by Salesforce. Sadly, the Salesforce model also uses publicly available GitHub repos, but the important bit is that the model can be swapped out. Brendan is currently working on a VS Code extension that doesn't borrow from the Microsoft code, so it will not be sending any telemetry to Microsoft. If this is the kind of thing you think you'd want to test drive, keep an eye on the GitHub repo for new releases. Last week, we talked about SATA cables sharing data over about a three-foot distance. This week, fiber optic cable says, hold my beer. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe to talk freely in the data center. Scientists in China have found that fiber optic cable can work as a receiver, effectively collecting audio waves that can then be heard and understood over a kilometer away. That's about two-thirds of a mile in uh, freedom units. Mm. In a world where absolutely everyone, everywhere, basically ever, has at least heard of the idea of communicating across long distances using a string and two tin cans, this idea should probably not be too much of a surprise. Other examples of how far a vibration can travel in ideal conditions include talking into an empty pipe. <laughs> And people might remember from spy movies how glass can be used as a transmitter when you point a laser microphone at the window. Yes, that's a real thing, too. Anyway, since humans be curious, a group of scientists from Tsinghua University in China decided to science the shit out of another really tiny yet high-quality pipe filled with glass. Fiber optic cables. The team discovered that in, in ideal conditions... Quote, normal human speech can be eavesdropped by a laser inferometer and recovered 1.1 kilometers away. What's interesting about this is that no super special equipment is needed on the end you're eavesdropping on. Just fiber in the room. Whew. The magic happens because everything's a wave, man. The fiber optic cable sends waves of light. Those light waves are affected by the waves created by sound in the room. Remove the sound of the waves of light. Yes, it's a thing. Let's not get into it. And what you're left with is intelligible sound. That's, of course, assuming the room was filled with intelligible sound to begin with. You and your boys trying to do karaoke to REM's It's the End of the World as we know it after 23 beers will, from any distance, still sound functionally insane. Leonard Bernstein! <laughs> Although, that could make for a really interesting counter-intel program. We could get Google Maps to change the map locations of sensitive locations to, like, local frat houses. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if instead of eavesdropping on the NSA headquarters, our adversaries accidentally started eavesdropping on Chugga Fifth Arai. Do you think that would make foreign relations better or worse? It can only go up. <laughs> Winamp returns to abuse an alpaca. If I say Winamp, 
one of two things will race through your mind. Either you will hear, it really whips the llama's ass, or you won't. For our millennial listeners who don't recall a time where music didn't come from Spotify and Apple, and who think tape hiss is a thing that we need to recreate, <sighs> Winamp was one of the most popular MP3 players in the 1990s. I say MP3 player, but the true strength of Winamp was its extensibility. You could apply custom skins. I had a Stargate one. You could load plugins for other file formats, and you could use it to sync your decidedly not iPod music player. Mine was a real karma, storing a massive 20 gigs of music back in 2005. Whoa. I know. It's hard to say what exactly killed Winamp, but I'd reckon it's some combination of music streaming services, iTunes desktop dominance, the rise of smartphones, and the availability of open source alternatives. All of these forces combined to weaken the strength of Winamp, and for all intents and purposes, the application ceased being maintained in 2013. A company called Radionomy bought Winamp from AOL in 2014 and has been working on it ever since. There was a new build released in 2018 that didn't do much to instill hope. Since then, the team has been busy porting the app from Visual Studio 2008 to 2019, adding a bunch of new codecs and support for Windows 11. Still, it's unlikely to ever be a true contender and is probably best consumed as a curiosity of time when your music had to be stored locally and hand curated through extensive playlists and custom metadata. Don't forget visualizations. Oh, of course visualizations. How else would I listen to my music? I, I can't believe the amount of time that I personally spent constructing playlists and hand editing the metadata for songs I'd gotten from totally legitimate, legitimate sources. sources. <laughs> Walmart, I think. Shut up. I really enjoyed how sometimes the same so songs from the same album would all have the album title type, like typed slightly differently or with different cases. So you had to fix all of them so they would be grouped by album. That was fun. Manually, one at a time. Yes. Because if you didn't do it when you downloaded, they were lost into the into the library, the wilderness, really. The abyss. That's a good word, too. Yes. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Kiss your dog, pet your cat, ignore your goldfish, and settle in for Sandman on Netflix. It's excellent I'm three episodes in. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or you could follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which, I mean, honestly, you shouldn't. Except stuff we write, because it's like real good, right? Like real good. Like real, real good. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.